Uh, okay, um, let me pray for us, and then I'll uh, explain some of what Ryan and I hope to do uh, this spring with this class. So let's pray together. Father, we are thankful that you are good to us, that you have created this world uh, in a way that reflects your glory and shows your goodness and your kindness. We thank you, Lord, that though we have plunged this world into sin and death and corruption, uh, that you have not let it go, but that you from the very start have promised to do something about it, and you would do so at great cost by sending your son Jesus into this world to rescue and redeem your people, and your world. And Lord, we pray, uh, thanking you that we are the recipients of that grace, but also participants in it. We pray uh, that this spring, as we look at your word as a whole and at what your mission is all about, that we would find ourselves as uh, recipients of it, but also those that get to participate in it now in very real ways. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, enable us to address honestly our own Uh, misgivings, fears, or insecurities that might arise when we start talking about a topic like mission, that you would, uh, that you would within us by your spirit, give us a great desire to uh, move faithfully and confidently out, knowing that it is you who change hearts, it is your work of redemption, and that we would have a real love for our neighbors and for our place Uh, to come to uh, experience the gracious effects of the gospel of the kingdom. And we, uh, we thank you for this time and pray that it would be profitable and fruitful and ultimately glorifying to you. We pray through Christ. Amen. Okay, um, let me start with a question and we'll kind of ease our way into some of what we want to talk about this morning. Um, I've got a, uh, a Wooten coffee Special cup. Delivery. Yeah. That has nothing to do with what we're going to be talking about. Um, okay, uh, huge, huge question uh, that I'd like to discuss just a little bit. What is the Bible all about? Obviously, there are a lot of answers we could be given that, that could be given to that. What is the Bible all about? Jesus. Yes. What might some other answers be? Redemptive history. Yeah, the, the, the history, the story of what God has done to redeem His people and, uh, and His world. Yeah, great. The love of the Father. Yeah, extended into the world. Here you go, Beth. What else? Yeah, yeah. Uh, like I said, the explanation of life and, and what this world is all about, uh, the, our purpose as people. Yeah. Um, so even if we just said that the Bible is all about Jesus, which is obviously right, this is what Jesus says in Luke 24, that the Bible is all about Him, we could narrow that even more and say, well, what about Jesus? Um, what, what, why did Jesus come? What did He come to do? And that might give us a little bit of a different answer as to what the Bible is all about. And, uh, and so here's what I want us to, to see. Is that Jesus came on a mission of rescue to seek and save the lost. Another way to say this is that He came to reveal who God is in His gracious, uh, loving character. And this is a quote that I use all the time, but for good reason, from Sally Lloyd-Jones, that talks about what this mission is, what Jesus 
actually came to do and what the Bible is all about. And she says this, the Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece in a puzzle. The piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. So another way to say this that might be uh, not quite as uh, compelling and beautiful as what Sally Lloyd-Jones says is that the Bible is all about God's mission. And everything uh, that, that, that is contained in the Bible is related to and is all about God's mission in the world. And so in an email that Ryan sent to me when we were talking through some of this, the way he put it was that everything that God does has to do with His mission. And that's what we're going to be looking at uh, through the lens. We're going to look at the whole of the Bible through the lens of mission. And so here's what an Old Testament scholar and theologian says about this, Christopher Wright, who wrote a book called The Mission of God, 600 plus pages uh, on this topic, if you're interested. It's actually very readable. There's just a lot to read. Here's what he says. Mission is what the Bible is all about. We could as meaningfully talk of the missional basis of the Bible as of the biblical basis of mission, okay? Everything in the Bible is about mission. So, what comes to mind then when you hear that, when you hear that word mission? Kind of word association. That we have a mission? Africa, yes. Uh, We probably think of missions a lot of times, and most of the time those missions are happening across the pond from us, right? That's where you do mission is in Africa. What else? By the way, we're going to say that that is a part of it. It's not the whole, of course. What else? Yeah, yeah. Intense intentionality that could be um, really uh, wisely directed in certain times to where it does call us to a whole lot. And so we do want to be very intentional. Um, But maybe if it's taken in a too extreme way, it's almost overwhelming, maybe. Yeah. What else? Purpose. Yeah, there's, there's some sort of purpose that's underlying it all. What else back here? Adventure. Yeah, good. That's great. Adventure. Anything else? Yes. Pressure, discomfort. I was waiting for that one. I was waiting for guilt. Um, yeah, pressure, discomfort... Probably this kind of underlying low-grade guilt that kind of continues to plague us and because we think, well, whatever mission is, I'm not doing enough of it, right? And so that makes us uncomfortable to even talk about the topic, and maybe that's why there aren't as many people in here this week. I don't know. Uh, yeah, so th- there is that, uh, this sense of, wow, that, that's really great. We should be doing this, but we're not. Uh, we kind of have that sense about it. And... Um, what we'll see through this, through this spring is that most of the time, I think, when we have that sort of guilt arise, it's because we are narrowly defining mission as evangelism, probably. 
And, uh, and so what we're going to see is that mission is much broader than that, but we're also going to try and talk some specifically about evangelism and try and cast it and set it more in this uh, bigger context of the Bible as a whole. So um, here's what uh, Chris Wright says about this. He had taught a course called The Biblical Basis for Mission, and he eventually changed the name of the course because he said, you know, of course you can go to specific passages in the Bible that, that speak very overtly about mission, But what he wants to say is that there's actually a way in which we should read the entire Bible that recognizes that the entire thing from Genesis to Revelation is about God's mission and is itself a missional document. So here's what he says. So he changes the name of this class to the missional basis of the Bible. I wanted them to see not just that the Bible contains a number of texts which happen to provide a rationale for missionary endeavor, but that the whole Bible is itself a missional phenomenon. The writings that now comprise our Bible are themselves the product of and witness to the ultimate mission of God. The Bible renders to us the story of God's mission through God's people in their engagement with God's world for the sake of the whole of God's creation. The Bible is the drama of this God and of, the pur- and of purpose engaged in the mission of achieving that purpose universally. So then he skips down to the last sentence here. Mission is in that much-abused phrase, what it is all about. So it's from start to finish about God's mission. So this is the story of the Bible. But what we're going to see, too, is that it's not just the story of the Bible that remains outside of us or that becomes the object of our study, which is important, of course, to study the Bible. But what we need to see from this is that because this is the story of the Bible and this is the story of what God is doing in the world, this is actually the story of your life as well. So to say then that mission is what, God's, is what God is all about in all that He does is also then to say mission is what our lives are about from start to finish in all aspects broadly defined. And I know that's a pretty big, big statement to make, but this is what we want to uh, discuss um, uh, this semester. So here's our objective with this Sunday school class, to see that everything that God does is about furthering His mission in the world And then that also our lives as individuals and as the church are wrapped up in this mission. And so this isn't an add-on activity that we do among other things. But actually mission is at the heart of who we are and not just what we do. The church itself is a missional community at the very essence of what the church is. So... It's at the heart of who we are as a people, and from that then flows what we do, okay? I know these are kind of, this may be a little impractical at this point, but this is trying to set forth the perspective that we're going to take on on this this semester. Um, Any questions before we give a definition of what we mean by mission here? Okay. Yeah, go ahead, Ryan. subsequent, you know, talk, or he might, he might mention this in his book, but he's getting at the idea that you can make a biblical rationale for any very varying topics. A biblical basis for marriage. A biblical basis for how to do your finances. A biblical basis for friendship. But mission is the only thing that you can actually clip those two. And you would never say there is a marital basis for the Bible. You would never say that there is a financial basis for the scriptures, 
No, there's only one thing that you can do that with, and that is there is a missional basis for the Bible because the Bible itself is a missional document. And unless we sort of understand what the story is about, the mission makes no it will not make any sense to us. And it's very, very important mm-hmm. for us to sort of get a grasp and see there. And it can become an add-on then. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So here's what we mean when we say mission. Here's what Christopher Wright defines it as. And this is rightly and helpfully broadly defined. Fundamentally, our mission, if it is biblically informed and validated, means our committed participation as God's people at God's invitation and command in God's own mission within the history of God's world for the redemption of God's creation. What stands out to you about that definition? Does anything stand out to you about that definition? Very much about God. Very much about God, yes. Yeah, that from start to finish, it is about God. And that's important when we start thinking about mission for sure. So over here, yeah, Beth, was that you? Oh, okay, okay, great. Yeah, and maybe even specifically you see... That second half of the quote, it's it's God's own mission that we are participating in. So this begins with Him. It's fundamentally His work that He's accomplishing in the world. So what's the danger danger that we face if we fail to appreciate that it is first and foremost God's work and not first and foremost our work? Does that make sense? What's the danger of failing to see that we are participating in God's work? It becomes our works. Yeah, it all rests on... If it's our work fundamentally, then the success or failure has everything to do with you and whether you can accomplish this. And if you don't, it's going to be a failure. Yeah, what else? We start to write the story. Yeah, and maybe even as we think about that... you. That could get us into the realm of uh, justifying the means by the end. Um, so we think if it's all about what we do, we just need to accomplish this however we want, then we might not go about uh, mission in a way that fits with what God says in His Word. So we might be tempted to manipulate people. We might be tempted to, um, to go about participating in God's mission in different ways that we shouldn't. Yeah, right. Great, yes. Anything else to notice about this quote before we move on here? Yeah, and as you'll see, the way he defines this is much broader than just missions, overseas missions, or even just narrowly evangelism. It's something much broader than that that he's talking about. So we're going to be looking at the mission of God throughout the whole of the Bible and the role we play in it. Brief summary of what we're going to do. So uh, two things we'll look at today. Um, One is the mission of God in the Trinity, which is to say the mission of God within Himself, and then the mission of God in creation. And uh, you might notice that, that typically, and you even see some of this in the definitions we have already listed on the sheet, 
Most of the time when we think about mission, we think of it exclusively in redemptive terms. And so, so what we mean by that is that it's only a mission of rescue then. And so if that were true, then our study of the mission of God could not begin until Genesis 3. Because that's when sin enters, that's when redemption becomes necessary. But what we're going to see today with these two, uh, with these two different sections is that God has a purpose and a mission even in creation that's there from the very start that was there prior to sin entering into the world. And that's going to be really important because we're going to see his, his work as one of redemption and restoration, or another way to say this is getting his original plan back on track. He's returning it to what he originally hoped and wanted it to be. So, uh, so it actually, God's mission begins with creation, and he's got a mission initially that is non-redemptive, that is in creation itself, and that's what we're going to look at. So first, the mission of God in the Trinity. First, I just want us to see real briefly that there's the mission of the Trinity in creation. It's easy sometimes to think that God the Father is the only one who was involved within the Godhead, uh, within uh, the creation of the world. That's not so. So I've got a couple other passages on here. I just want to see first that creation is something that all three persons of the Trinity participated in. So you see Genesis 1, 1 and 2. The Holy Spirit is involved from the start here. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then Jesus, at the beginning of John's Gospel, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then verse 3 is really important. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then Colossians 1, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So all three persons of the Trinity were involved in creation. So what is this mission then that the Trinity had in creation? A few points on this. If you want to open up uh, your pew Bible or just your own Bible to John 17, that's where we're going to be looking some for this section. Although I do have it printed on the sheet here. I'm going to try not to kill as many trees this spring by putting all the verses on there. So we'll open up real book Bibles. So the mission of Trinity in creation. A few things we need to, to see in order to understand what, what is God's purpose in creation and what, what, what flows from the Godhead uh, before anything else. So first point to see here is that God has no need to create. There was nothing necessary about creation. He wasn't lacking anything from the start. The, the God of the Bible is not one who is lonely or needy. Uh, the, the God of the Bible is, who is, is one who is relationship itself and has existed in this perfect intimacy, this loving relationship, this self-giving relationship from all eternity. So it wasn't like God is thinking, you know, it'd be really nice to have somebody else around here. You know, I'm just, this is kind of just me doing my own thing. Wasn't it at all? Perfectly satisfied, perfectly intimate, perfectly loving and glorious, all within himself from all eternity. So there was no need for him to create. There's this relationship of mutual delight and intimacy that exists among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is who God is. 
And so Michael Reeves, in, uh, in Delighting in the Trinity, and all these quotes are from him from here on. He's fantastic on this point. He says this, Before he ever created, before he ever ruled the world, before anything else, this God was a father loving his son. That's a beautiful way to think about who God is, that there's this love that existed from the very start. And then this next statement from him is probably an overstatement, but it, he's on to something for sure. It says, The most foundational thing in God is not some abstract quality, but the fact that he is Father. We could say it maybe this way, that the most foundational thing in God is not some abstract quality, but the fact that he is relationship. That is who he is and who he has always been and who he always will be. And so this is why in 1 John, John can say, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Within himself, he is a loving relationship. And so here's where then it, it, it gets us to where we want to start talking about God's mission within himself. It means that God is inherently outgoing. Now here's what, here's what we mean by that. A good quote from Reeves that gets at it. For if before all things God was eternally a father, then this God is an inherently outgoing, life-giving God. He did not give life for the first time when he decided to create. From eternity, he has been life-giving. And that there was always this father-son relationship and the spirit involved in this, uh, this loving, mutual intimacy. So, in a sense, we could say it this way. God is missional within the Godhead. He has this outgoing uh, sense within the Godhead of person-to-person love that's taking place within God Himself, moving towards one another in this self-giving love. So, then when we come to creation, God chose, not necessarily, but because He wanted to, He chose to create in order to share this love, in order for it to spill out into this creation that He would make. And so Reeves again, since God the Father has eternally loved His Son, it is entirely characteristic of Him to turn and create others that He might also love them. That they would be from the very start the objects of His affection because that's the sort of God He is. is one who is self-giving and desiring to lavish His love upon that which He would make. And so um, in Colossians 1.16, we saw this in the previous section that's on your sheet. Jesus is spoken of as the image of the invisible God. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. Uh, the author of Hebrews says the same thing. Now, the, this, this Jesus who then shows us what God is like is the one who has from all eternity been the object of His Father's affection. So even from the very start, the way Jesus reveals God to us is as one who is loving relationship and has been that from all eternity. So... Uh, Jesus reveals God's outgoing character in that way. So here uh, is where we're going to look at uh, John 17. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer where He's praying to the Father and we learn much about uh, the relationship within God, uh, within the Godhead. And here's what, here's what He says, John 17, 24 to 26. Father, I desire that they also whom You have given Me may be with Me where I am, to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I've made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So Jesus says his purpose here is that 
this love that he's been experiencing from the Father from all eternity, this perfectly intimate, righteous love, is now the same love that he's going to give to you, his people. That's why he's here. I'm going to continue to make it known that the love with which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. So then Reeves with a couple more quotes. The Father loved him before the creation of the world, and the reason the Father sends him is so that the Father's love for him might be in others also. That is why the Son goes out from the Father in both creation and salvation, that the love of the Father for the Son might be shared. And then uh, another one. The very nature of the triune God is to be effusive, ebullient, and bountiful. The Father rejoices to have another beside Him, and He finds His very self in pouring out His love. Creation is about the spreading, the diffusion, the outward explosion of that love. So this is God's mission uh, in the Trinity from the very start. He wants to share this love with those uh, with whom He would create. And so that, that, that is there before sin enters the world. That's before anybody is in need of redemption. This is who God is from the very start, outgoing in His very character, wanting to lavish His love upon that which He would create, because that's what He's been doing within Himself forever. So this is who God is. Uh, his initial mission then is to create you to share in that love and that intimacy that He's had for all eternity. Okay, so... Uh, Quick break here on this. Why would it be so important for us to understand that this is who God is and how He reveals Himself? Why is that so important to understand from the start? Yeah. Yeah, that that uh, that we oftentimes we think more of his judgment, and so it does become easier to think of God primarily as judge or first as judge. Maybe not primarily, but if you, and and it might be the case that if you were just to ask people on the street who is God, they might come up with that answer pretty quickly. Yeah, there's the bumper sticker that uh, says Jesus is coming back soon. Look busy, something like that. We think, like, you better get your act together. Uh, yeah, why else? Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, Holly said that, uh, that it's, understanding who God is is the lens through which we would see everything that's happening to us in our own lives. And so maybe an example of that, hard things come into your life. If God has fundamentally uh, and first and foremost revealed Himself as judge, then it becomes pretty easy to interpret all these hard things as judgment on God's part coming at you. Um, and, and so it would transform your perspective of your suffering and of your hard things to think, okay, God in and of Himself here desires to lavish His love upon creation and, and upon His people. How does that help me change the way that I would view these hard things in my life, especially one united to Jesus now? Uh, what else? Any other thoughts on that, that uh, why this would be important to know this about who God is and how He reveals Himself? Yeah, Scott. Yeah. 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Scott said that uh, if it's fundamentally God's mission in which we're participating, then we need to know more about who that God is and the way in which he goes about pursuing this mission. And so, yeah, if love is fundamental, then that... And so, I, think, I mean, it's beautiful, obviously, but it, it's also... Um, it may even transform, like, that sort of pressure and guilt that we sort of have from the start to think, no, God is, is operating fundamentally with this motive of love. That's what's driving... Even His judgment is motivated from love because He's desiring to rid this world of evil and of sin, to make it what it should be. And so that, that could be a, a powerful thing for us to continue to consider. Okay, so uh, then the next, next thing that we'll look at here is how does this mission of love that's within the Trinity, within God Himself, that, that pours out into the world, how does it then work itself out in creation? And this is where it becomes more um, explicit as to how we're involved in this mission. So the mission of God in creation, this is not going to be uh, new to, to many of us here. Uh, Darwin talked some about this the first week of that sermon series on work, but these are important texts to continue to go back to. So a few points. So, uh, and actually, you can go and open up in your Bibles to Genesis 1. We're going to look at um, a little section of Genesis 1 and then a longer section of Genesis 2. We won't read the whole creation account. You'll remember that it begins with a couple verses where the earth is without form and void. The Spirit of God is hovering over this waters. You've got this kind of watery mass, whatever, that's happening. And then into that, God begins to speak and order comes forth. He brings order from chaos and, uh, and you see that the, these days he creates, he speaks, he creates, he says, let us do this. He does it. And then he sits back and he says, and it was good. He admires his work. That pattern happens over and over again. But the picture that we get when we look at it as a whole is that God creates this world as his kingdom over which he is the sovereign king. Significant that as he sits down and rests at the end, it's the picture of a king having like sitting down on his throne, assuming this throne um, where he is obviously the one who's ruling and reigning over all things. So he, he speaks things into existence, which are kingly declarations. Things happen because he is the king. Uh, and then he's pictured as king over his creation and his resting. Everything is as it should be at the end of the sixth day. And he's enjoying this creation, this kingdom that he's created where he's honored and glorified. And then, as I said, he's, uh, God's creation is good. And, of course, after he's created the man and the woman, he says at the end of the sixth day, behold, it was very good when everything is as it should be at the end. Okay, as we're going forward here, I want to ask this question. Why is it so important to affirm the original goodness of creation? Why must we understand that creation itself was good? Yeah, Don. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, he said it's a, uh, a glimpse in some way of what we're to look forward to. That's great. It, it, so God starts um, with this good creation, then we know that things go badly. Then in next chapter in Genesis three, um, but that the end is going to be a restored creation where it is good once again in a very physical world. Yeah. What else? Other reasons this would be important. Other thoughts on that? 
Yeah, yeah. The, uh, Catherine said, what, what we see today is not as it should be. Um, yeah, and so it is important to know that God didn't create a world with sin in it. God didn't create the world in such a way where death was a part of things. God didn't create a world in which suffering existed. Um, this is all a product of sin in the world. And, uh, and so we need to understand that uh, this God of love who's pouring out his love into creation creates this world as good. And it was good in and of itself initially. Okay, so uh, God creates this world as his kingdom or he reigns as king over it. Um, secondly, though, God creates humans as his kingly image bearers. So he's moving through this creation account pretty quickly in the way it's recorded to us. Um, God says, let's do it. He does it. It's good. Let's move to the next day. There was morning and evening and on and on. When he gets into the sixth day, he slows down and he says something about humanity that he doesn't say about the rest of creation, right? What he says is that they are made in his image. So let's look at uh, Genesis 1, 26 to 28. This is a huge, huge topic for us as we think about mission. He says this in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So real quickly, uh, this term image of God is not something that's original to the Bible. So even um, in the first hearers of this, if it's this uh, group that's coming out of uh, the Exodus after having been in slavery in Egypt, and Moses is now giving this, um, this account of creation to Israel to remind them of who they are and of their origins... When they hear that term, image of God, that's not the first time they've heard it. Would have been a familiar term. And so uh, uh, a couple unique things about it in the way that it's referred to. Um, When the term image of God was used in other literature of the day, it referred to royalty exclusively. So you and I would not be considered the image of God. That would be reserved for the king and the king alone. Okay, so that's one important point to understand. What God says about the image of God is that uh, it's actually uh, for all humanity, that every human is made in the image of God. But the way this would work is that kings would come into a land, they'd conquer a land, and then they would place images of themselves throughout that land, and they would serve as reminders. So if you, got, if you started thinking, I wonder kind of who runs this place, these images are there to remind you of it, okay? This guy's the boss, he's the king. So in a way that's similar to that, in a way, though, that is, uh, that's much more glorious and much less tyrannical, um, God creates humans to show the world what he's like. Every person is to, is to reflect God's goodness and his glory um, to the created world, around, uh, created world around us. So this is, we could say it this way, that God's mission, even from the start in Genesis 1, as it's articulated here is to show forth His glory and His goodness to the whole creation, through the whole creation, but especially through His image bearers. That humanity holds this particular unique place in God's creation as being those who, in a way, unlike uh, the heavens that declare the glory of God, Psalm 19, the way that the, the skies above declare His handiwork, yes, that's glorious, but you 
reflect God's glory in a way like nothing else in creation does. And that's his purpose. That's his mission. We're going to show what God is like um, through uh, reflecting his goodness and his glory. So that's, of course, then when we see our mission as well. We could say then uh, that we are God's ambassadors. We are uh, created to represent him to the world. We've been entrusted with this kingly task of showing forth who he is. That's what God uh, has given to us to do. So he gives in some more specific instructions as to what this is going to look like. So this is C on your sheet there. God gives them a gloriously kingly mission. We're not going to talk about all these. uh, What we're going to try and do over the course of these uh, 11 weeks is give something practical each week. And so we'll deal with some of these aspects in future weeks. But a few different specific missions that are are, uh, articulated. One is be fruitful and multiply. Um, By the way, not all these things are separate here. So be fruitful and multiply to continue to fill the earth even with uh, more and more image bearers of God. And then uh, rule and subdue. If you look at uh, chapter 1, verse 28, that's where we see this. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Rule and subdue this land. But do so in a way that reflects God's goodness and glory. Interact with the creation. Bring forth its potential. Show forth its goodness um, in a way that is, is a God-like way. That treats the creation in a way that God would. So we're called to steward it in that way. To rule and subdue. And then finally, and this is where we'll look at Genesis 2. Uh, he says specifically to work and keep the garden. And those are two important words. Uh, so let's look at Genesis 2. See the final portion of this. Let's read verses uh, 4 through 9 and then 15 through 17. So we'll skip the little section on the rivers there. Chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth uh, when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of, the, of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And skip to 15. This is what he does with this man. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So a few things to notice about this text. One is that if you look back to verse 5, you see that the way God creates this initially is not as a garden from the start. Um, it's, It's undeveloped. At the beginning, And the reason for it, he says, in order for this garden to grow, there must be this man in the garden to work the ground. So God, from the very start, has a, a specific purpose for this man, that, that we are going to be called to bring forth this, uh, this, the fruit of creation, to take this creation, cultivate it, and bring forth those things which are beautiful. And so that's confirmed again in verse 15. He says, to work it and keep it. Uh, A 
couple things about this. One is that uh, to, to develop or to cultivate it uh, is a part of this call. And a way to think about this is that, the, the, that humanity is called, and this is not just an agricultural thing, but it's represented as such here, but we are called to bring forth the glorious potential of God's creation through what we do. There is glorious potential in the created world And so what we are called to do is to bring forth that potential in a way that shows forth God's glory and His goodness. And um, and we'll see down below here, I want to talk just a little bit about culture making in that way. That we can take something that that is of this created order, develop it, work it, and make it into something beautiful that it wasn't before. Bringing forth this potential that is there in creation. There's also an aspect of this where we're to keep it or to preserve it or protect it. So there's a sense in which we're to maintain the goodness of God's creation through what we do as well. So the task here is to care and cultivate the garden, to extend it, bring forth this glorious potential, and in so doing, show what God is like. So we bring these two together and we'll ask a couple questions to, uh, to wrap up our time. When we combine Genesis 1, 26 through 28, which is... Um, classically known as the cultural mandate or creational mandate to bring forth this culture, with God's words to the man in Genesis 2 to work it and keep it, we get this better picture of what our mission is to look like. And we can apply it in all sorts of different ways. But what I want to do just as we close up here is uh, is think about the mission of God in culture making. So part of fulfilling God's creative purposes in the world is actually bringing forth this good and glorious potential from the created order. Um, So here's what, uh, this could get us started with a little discussion here from Bartholomew and Goheen. Here's what they say about this. Culture is making something of the world. The biblical story of human beginnings calls us to bring every kind of cultural activity within the service of God. We image God in creation precisely as we develop its potential and cultivate its possibilities in agriculture, art, music, commerce, politics, scholarship, family life, church, leisure, and so on in ways that honor God. So th- this, is, uh, this is pretty broad in scope, right? Um, and I guess when I'm thinking of culture making here, um, we don't have to think of it in terms of arts, music, etc. You know, we think of like the cultural district is made up of museums and um, things that we would define in that way. But it would extend to, uh, to architecture, to agriculture, to, uh, to any and all aspects of our life. Uh, and, and so this is what the call is to us. Um, let me do this. How might this perspective on life um, and this goodness of creation and of culture making resonate with your non-Christian friends? I just skipped like all the discussion we could have about ways in which we would show forth God's glory and our music and all these things. But to say that the created world is good, it's fallen, it's broken, but it's, there's still inherent goodness to it, and that you're created to bring forth the glory of creation. How might that, uh, how might your non-Christian friends and neighbors hear that and think about that in terms of how they think about Christianity? Does that make sense? Okay, 
Yeah, yeah, it makes God more approachable. Um, Carter said not, not as uh, finger-wagging. Um, yeah, that, that it connects to real life. God cares about all of what we do. Yeah, what else? Yeah, Martin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, Martin said that uh, most of what his non-Christian friends get uh, in terms of Christianity or uh, hear about Christianity is from the popular media. And probably what you're not getting is a lot of affirmation of the goodness of creation and the glorious task that we have of developing culture in the world. <laughs> yeah, Don. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. So uh, Don said that this would help, um, especially if some of our friends have this kind of longing or like this question like everybody does of what is, when you get to the point of like, what's the purpose of my life? This speaks directly to that uh, and says, the Bible has something to say about what your purpose is in life. You're actually, you were created for God and created to bring forth this glorious potential of the world and in so doing, honor Him and then... um, yeah, that, that's great. And that, um, I think, connected to that then would be that, um, maybe even to Martin's point as well, that, that uh, Christianity is not merely some, uh, something that has to do with, it, it, there's no sacred, secular sort of dichotomy that um, God only cares about like your religious life or that he only cares about what you do on Sundays. He only cares about these specific ethical parts of your life. When in fact Christianity speaks to the whole of your life and has everything to do with the whole of your life, and I think that's a lot more compelling and beautiful and interesting than um, to say it only has to do with your sin narrowly defined as breaking some law. Yeah, Ryan. Well, it, just, it also speaks to the idea of, of, of uh, that God is a God who creates stuff. We stuff the, the missional is stuffly. <laughs> God was long on mission before the fall ever happened, making stuff, creating the world good. And so, therefore, to be on mission means that you are an image bearer in many, many, many more ways than how well you're doing evangelism or preaching the gospel to somebody. Mm-hmm. The challenge for us is that we'll leave here today and go, you know, that's not what I'm doing. Yeah. You know, like, I'm just supposed to be a Christian in the world, I'm supposed to go to work and share the gospel with 10 people this week, and then if so, God will be really happy with me. Instead of like, well, Yeah, Martin. And then we'll pray and wrap up.
Yeah. Yeah, the, uh, Martin had said that there's um, kind of a prevailing assumption that God is really sort of a Santa Claus figure who's really here to do for me what I would like. Um, and that this actually says, yeah, enter into, uh, enter into all parts of your life with the most fundamental motive of bringing honor and glory to God because that's what you're created, created to do. Now, obviously, sin has hurt this significantly. Um, this isn't, things aren't like they were in the garden now for us. And we're going to talk about that next week. So our mission has been impacted by sin, and we'll look at how it has, was impacted next week uh, as we look at Genesis 3. There's a good quote from Bartholomew and Goheen for you on there as a um, final little summary of what we talked about. Let me pray for us, and then uh, we'll go worship. Father, thank you for the way that you've created us to image you, to show forth what you're like. We thank you that you are a God of love who desires to be in relationship with your uh, creation, uh, with us as your image bearers, and that it is your uh, delight to lavish your love upon us and that even in the midst of our rebellion, that desire remained and you, you did something about it by sending your son to die and be raised for us. And we thank you for that grace and that love We thank you that we can worship you for that today. And so for those of us going into worship now, we pray that that would motivate us to sing your praises, to do so because we have received your grace. And for those who had worshiped this morning, we pray that you would be with them to to go forth as ambassadors of your love and image bearers in this world. And we pray all this for your glory and for our good as your people. Amen.